Hi, welcome to podcast number 55, brought to you by Help with Parkinson's. Our guest today is Dr. Subramanian, movement disorder specialist from Hershey Medical Center in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And I'm your host, Warren Butfinick. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sub. Hello. Glad you could make it. Great. So today we have a very interesting topic here. You, this is from the uh, American Academy of Neurology, AAN, from the annual meeting. And it's about 12 things that they brought up, which some of them sound really good. They're all interesting, but some sound very promising. And, uh, what do you think about, about maybe half of them are promising, Dr. Sub, and half are kind of experimental? Yeah, I think so. And, and I think uh, we should talk, perhaps we'll try to cover uh, some of it today. And then if we need to come back and do another podcast with the other half of um, the ones. But I think these 12 um, that have been picked by the uh, APDA, American Parkinson's Disease Association, um, medical officer, Dr. Rebecca Gilbert, um, she posted this on May 14, 2019, uh, in the APDA um, highlights um, in the uh, in their website. And as uh, many of the listeners know, we are an APDA uh, information referral center here in Hershey. Um, I was at the meeting as well, and I did attend all these sessions. So um, I, I agree with Rebecca that uh, these are sort of interesting and um, sort of the highlights of, uh, of the meeting uh, that I think it's probably worth talking a little bit about. And you think these studies, this one through 12, is, is that in order of anything or is it just random? Just random, but I think um, she picked what, her, um, what came to her mind as the top. But, you know, if I were to do, redo it, I would probably use, choose the same 12, but maybe in a different order. So. Right, right. Yeah, the first one. Is the, is the first human study done by a molecule that could help affect the amount of alpha-synuclein in the body. In the right. human. That, right. seemed very, that seemed very interesting. And the first, it's not fully for Parkinson's patients yet because the first the study was done on all healthy volunteers. Right. So you want to go over this first one? Right. So basically, alpha-synuclein is this abnormal protein that we think is the big problem in almost all forms of Parkinson's, whether it's genetic or uh, idiopathic, meaning that happens in, in, in general without a genetic cause. We think alpha-synuclein is still um, the key uh, reason why uh, we do get Parkinson's disease. They cause uh, nerve death. And uh, this study reports uh, a compound, a novel small molecule called PBT-434. And uh, this particular molecule inhibits uh, alpha-synuclein aggregation. And that's a key word. Uh, we all need some uh, alpha-synuclein, and all normal people have some alpha-synuclein in the body. If you don't have alpha-synuclein at all, um, that is a problem because if you make a mutant animal which doesn't have alpha-synuclein at all, the animal doesn't survive. So we do need some. But the problem is that the alpha-synuclein can um, aggregate, meaning uh, instead of being in a monomer, a single form, it can double up, triple up, and you can multimer, meaning lots of them can get together and form these aggregates. And these aggregates are the real problem. So um, aggregation of alpha-synuclein is considered pathological, 
And if they can be uh, stopped, then it could be a great thing. So what this, in, these investigators first did was they tested this particular compound in animal models. And because they found some uh, good uh, benefits in the animal models, uh, then they decided to test it in normal healthy controls. And uh, this uh, appears to be the first step because uh, it was tolerated well in healthy controls and did not produce any kind of harm in the short run. They only tried it for a short period of four to six weeks. And during that time, it seems like it, um, it did uh, provide uh, no uh, toxicity. So the next step would be to study it in Parkinson's disease patients. Um, and this is already in the planning stage and should be happening in short order. Right. And the, the way in somebody with Parkinson's disease, you can't tell if they have the alpha-synuclein, but I guess you're looking for a, a favorable reaction to it. No, the, I think the consensus now is that the Lewy bodies that are seen in Parkinson's disease are made out of alpha-synuclein. So I think it's pretty much a given that almost everybody with Parkinson's disease has alpha-synuclein aggregates in their brain for sure. Uh, now the question is, can you stop it from get, getting it to the brain or even if you got it to the brain, it didn't produce aggregates uh, and you can leave them as monomers, meaning individual fibrils not aggregated into these complex protein molecules. If you can prevent that aggregation, then you could probably um, get away with uh, uh, good procrastination of disease progression or slowing of disease progression can be achieved. That, that would be the hope. But anyway, we're a long ways from there. Um, but this is a good start, and, and it's important that we make this good start. Right. And when you talk about molecules, molecule is a, is a, unique, a unique cell that, that has never been tested before, is that, at least in this case. Is that, is that correct? So PETB434 has not been tested before, um, and uh, meaning it's not tested in Parkinson's patients before, but obviously in the animal models, it did um, help prevent aggregation. And so this, uh, what's reported is really safety. Is it safe to give to humans or not? And the answer is yes, it appears to be safe. And that's the first step. We always do a safety study before we uh, do it on uh, Parkinson patients. So it passed the first um, benchmark. Now we got to go to the next benchmark. Right. Interesting, because not too long ago, it was still up in the air what role alpha-synuclein had in the, in the Parkinson's patient. Now it's kind of a given. Right. I think it, it, all along we had that suspicion that alpha-synuclein is a, a key player. Um, it was first discovered in a genetic form of Parkinson's disease from an Italian Sicilian family. But then uh, over the years, we have really uh, come to understand that this has uh, now become a key player. Now, there are other proteins. There's LAR2, pink one There are many other proteins that are also involved. But we know the alpha-synuclein is one of the key players, and it forms what we call Lewy bodies in, in the brain. And Lewy body formation is key before neurons die. Right, interesting. The second second one on this on this group is uh, kind of an interesting one. It's the uh, opicapone. Yes, that seems like it could be pretty pretty important. It's. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to explain that one? That's something similar than that. Is the Stilevo, I guess, has right. that, uh, but it, this is even better. 
Right. So uh, this is a, a second thing that got reported at the meeting was that the once daily opicapone increases on time in patients with Parkinson's disease. And this was a combined results from two phase three studies. So um, Levitt et al., uh, Dr. Peter Levitt from um, Detroit, um, he uh, was the person who reported this uh, on behalf of the opicapone investigators. And uh, what opicapone is, uh, is that it is a COMT inhibitor. We've talked about this briefly in a previous broadcast, but um, here's a, a summary of what a COMT is and what a COMT inhibitor is. COMT stands for carboxy-O-methyltransferase. It's an enzyme that everybody has. Um, Warren has it and I have it. Everybody, all humans have COMT. And COMT um, breaks down dopamine, both in the blood as well as in the brain. And why do we need to break down dopamine? We do need to break down dopamine because sometimes there's excess dopamine in some individuals. And um, taking that out is important because otherwise you have deleterious side effects. But of course, in Parkinson's disease, uh, we have dopamine deficiency, so we don't want uh, any uh, dopamine breakdown to occur, we would like to preserve as much as possible the dopamine. So one way in which we treat Parkinson's disease is to inhibit this enzyme COMT. And um, we have, in the historically, we have had many COMT inhibitors. The first one that came about was a medicine called um, Talcopone, T-A-L-C-O-P-O-N-E. It was called TASMAR, T-A-S-M-A-R. Some of the um, older Parkinson patients who have had disease for more than 20 years may remember Tasmar. Uh, Tasmar um, was very effective, was a very good drug. However, um, after a few years of being available in the market, we found out that Tasmar caused problems with the liver. So it came under very severe restrictions. Uh, we had to monitor liver function tests uh, very closely, and only then we could use this drug. So TASMAR became uh, almost uh, unavailable. It is still available, actually. It's available even today. Um, I have one uh, patient who takes uh, TASMAR, and I monitor that patient. Uh, but it became very cumbersome, very difficult to use, and required very close monitoring, and that, that became a problem. Then came another medicine um, called Enthacapone, E-N-C-A-T-O-P-O-N-E. Uh, it's called uh, Comtan. And uh, that medicine became available, and it was much more safer. Uh, and then um, the company that made Antacapone, or uh, Comtan, decided to combine it with Carbidopa-Levodopa, and that combination was called Stelevo. So this one has Carbidopa-Levodopa and Antacapone. Um, these drugs are useful, and they're useful especially in, in patients who have end-of-dose wearing off, that if they take their medicine, uh, and before their fourth hour is up, if their medicine is causing trouble, uh, meaning it doesn't work anymore and they're stiff and slow and they have tremor, that could be a problem. Uh, and in that situation, uh, we can use uh, Entecapone um, or Comtan. However, Entecapone has some issues. Well, first of all, you have to uh, use it four times a day if you're taking carbidopolevitopa. Whenever you're taking carbidopolevitopa, you have to use uh, Comtan with it or you use it in the combination called Stalivo. 
That's one problem. Second problem is some people who take anticapone can get di diarrhea. Um, there's frequently yellowish discoloration of their urine. Um, and sometimes um, it can also increase the risk of dyskinesia, um, which as you know, is the excessive involuntary movements that some patients with Parkinson's disease have. So um, what is opicapone? Opicapone is a new drug and it's in the same category. It's a carboxyomethyltransferase inhibitor, COMT inhibitor. However, um, it does have um, uh, much longer half-life um, and therefore it can be given once a day. It doesn't have to be dosed four times a day. And um, they have tested it in a number of patients in Europe and now uh, phase three trial has been going on uh, in several countries uh, both in Europe and in um, North America. And basically, the results showed that opicapone increased the time um, of um, on time, basically the time when the carbidopalavidopa works well uh, without increasing troublesome dyskinesia. Uh, and so this drug is uh, looking very positive. Um, I think there is a good chance that uh, by mid-year next year, uh, April or May, uh, there is a good likelihood that this drug will reach the market in in United States and will be available for patients um, who have end of dose wearing off and just take this one drug once a day to provide a more smooth um, daily course. Um, so it's promising. It looks promising. Sounds good. And would that allow you not, not to have to take the uh, carbidopa? No, no. So... Uh, CMT inhibitor, inhibitors are basically adjuncts to carbidopa levodopa. Okay. It makes the carbidopa levodopa more effective and increases the um, duration under the curve in which carbidopa levodopa works. So basically, it's like, uh, to give an analogy, uh, it's like if you're going to put gas into your car and when you go to the gas station, you see um, these additives that they, they sell. If you add the additive, then... Mm -hmm. You don't, have, you don't have to use as much gas or the gas works a little better. So all these inhibitors, carboxyomethyltransferase inhibitors, CMT inhibitors, and the MAOB inhibitors, both are sort of additives. You still need the gasoline, which is the carbidopalavidopa. You still need that. Right. But it makes it easier, smoother. The big advantage that opicapone offers is the likelihood that um, you wouldn't have a lot of dyskinesias if you were to use opicapone. And also the once a day convenience. So you just take it once a day, uh, although you still have to take carbidopa levodopa um, four times a day or sometimes five times a day, depending right. on how you are. But it does give you the advantage of taking opicapone only once a day. And it might smoothen your evenings and nights because it's very long half-life. So uh, unlike the four-hour um, end-of-dose varying off issue, that this might be a, a better solution. Sounds good. And do you know if it still has that orange problem? You, you're saying no, that it doesn't. It doesn't. This opicapone does not have the orange additive. That's good. That comes with anticapone, yeah. We used to have to wear gloves in the pharmacy to count that out mm. because mm. it stained everything. Mm. Mm. It definitely stained your urine. Yes, definitely. But, yeah. So that make it much more likely people would want to take that drug now. Yeah, aesthetically, it's more convenient. Right. Although the yellow color was just totally benign. It had no negative right. other than the aesthetic aspect. Yeah. Right.
Okay, and the third one here, it's a open label study about uh, stem, human stem cells. And it's an open label study, which means everybody knows the drug that they're taking. Right. Right. Could, could you explain that third one for, for us? Yes. So um, what uh, this company did, it's uh, called the International Stem Cell Corporation. Um, they used a technique called parthenogenesis. Um, so parthenogenesis is in a, in a way you take an egg and you manipulate the egg to produce a stem cell um, without actually fertilizing. So it's unfertilized egg. And using an unfertilized egg, you can make um, stem cells. And this has been known for many years. There are certain organisms that actually do this naturally. Um, certain types of frogs use parthenogenesis for reproduction. Um, but in humans, obviously, we always have uh, a male and a female gamete coming together to form a zygote. And we'll always use that idea. But this company, um, use the technique of parthenogenesis, just taking an unfertilized female egg and then from that generating stem cells. Um, and then uh, in this open-label study, they um, tested uh, in three groups of patients uh, in an open-label fashion, meaning they all knew what they were getting. Uh, they put in these dopamine-producing cells into the brain and uh, they did this using surgery and um, they showed that it was safe. It did not produce uh, any negative uh, side effects and that, um, uh, that these uh, patients um, are having some benefits uh, for Parkinson's disease. Obviously, I say this in a very careful manner because open-label studies are always a problem because open-label studies always uh, generate an issue of um, whether placebo effects are there and whether the placebo could have uh, created some of the benefits that you're seeing. So um, we still have to wait for um, long-term uh, safety data in these patients. It's only been um, in, in the bodies for about uh, five years or so. I mean, sorry, a year or so. And, and the goal is to uh, test it for five years. So we'll see how this all turns up. But so far, preliminary studies looking very good. So what does this offer for Parkinson patients? Um, there is a lot of controversy about using embryonic stem cells, and there's a lot of controversy using inducible pluripotent stem cells, which we have covered in the previous pod podcast. And both of them um, have ethical as well as cost issues. If you use parthenogenesis, which is a mechanism by which you can just take a female ovum and use that to generate um, stem cells. Um, this overcomes some of the ethical um, dilemmas that we have, because after all, um, we're doing it in a may, in a very artificial way. It's an induced way, and um, these are cells, stem cells that wouldn't have any natural course of becoming anything um, in the way they are produced. So there's some advantage there. In your opinion, do you think that? Uh setting up a factory of making like ears and kidneys with a, just the ovum would be considered okay? Or is that still, because people say that's playing God. You think there'd still be a big, big, big uh, fight about that? No, I think, you know, parthenogenesis um, is 
at least from an ethical perspective, not considered this at the same level as um, some of these other ways in which uh, stem cells are produced. Uh, in the sense that parthenogenesis is simply manipulating the egg cell, we're not um, actually producing gametes and um, fertilization like you would normally do in, in normal reproduction. So it's really not a normal reproductive manner. It's a very artificial synthetic way in which um, a ovum is made to act as if it is a zygote. Um, so it's just really not a um, normal uh, way of doing. So just to give, uh, to further elaborate on it, uh, when a male and a female gamete comes together, you have half the genes coming from one individual and the other half of the gene coming from the other individual. So in this case, half are male genes and the half are female genes and the two together produce a zygote. When you do parthenogenesis, all the genes are coming from one same individual. The, the egg, which is coming from the mom, has all the genes. All you're doing is you're allowing that uh, those genes to pretend to be a zygote. So allowing them to go to what we call mitosis, allowing those cells to multiply is what is creating the stem cells. So it has no natural course to become a zygote. Um, it's just simply becoming stem cells. So I think this may have some options and parthenogenetic stem cells have been used for um, reconstruction of um, urinary bladder, has um, been used for uh, reconstruction of other organs by using them as stem cell scaffolds. Um, so this is already happening. So I'm not sure there would be a huge objections to using this in, in Parkinson's disease. That could work out really well then. Yes. Interesting. Okay, the, uh, the next one here is, uh, talked about people that have art therapy, like painting pictures and sculptures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how that seems to be uh, helping them out. They haven't really done a full study on that, but they're looking to the future maybe of investigating that. Yeah, it was a, it's a very interesting um, take on um, how art could be used for helping people with Parkinson's disease. I think it's a, a very interesting, um, uh, what would I say, it's an interesting, interesting uh, take on how uh, people uh, get creative to use different things. And uh, what happened is that um, uh, Huka et al., a group of um, scientists, uh, doctors, art teachers, artists, they all came together and decided that they would test whether art therapy um, would provide any benefit for Parkinson's disease. Uh, some of the listeners may know that art therapy is extensively used um, in autistic children, it's used in cerebral palsy kids. Art therapy is also used for behavioral control in, um, uh, you know, uh, juvenile delinquents. Art therapy is also used um, in psychiatric diseases. Many psychiatric diseases, art therapy is used. And art therapy has been shown to have some benefit uh, in people with um, uh, certain degenerative neurodegenerative disorders such as Alzheimer's disease, uh, playing music, uh, such kinds of things have had some benefit. So here um, they tried to use um, actual physical art 
like you know painting fine arts uh, to see whether dexterity skills and also visual constructional uh, abilities can be improved in Parkinson's disease. Um, so uh, they gave a bunch of tasks um, like using uh, uh, just regular painting, also the number painting uh, program where you know you have certain numbers and you fill those numbers with colors. And when you finish the colors numbering scheme, you actually end up creating a beautiful picture. Um, they used that idea uh, for uh, essentially teaching Parkinson's patients how to make these uh, beautiful pieces of art and in, in this process, they were able to practice their skills to use their hands, their fingers, um, the eyes, and also, of course, the brain. Uh, it, it made gave them some pleasure and enjoyment and improved their uh, coordination, uh, visual-spatial coordination. So um, what, uh, what they found, which is also interesting, it's open label. They didn't do a, a blinded placebo control study, but they found out that by doing art, their unified Parkinson's disease rating score actually improved. Not by much, but some. Um, and that indicated that uh, practicing your um, dexterity skills, making you more dexterous, actually improved your uh, Parkinson's scores or at least there's a suggestion that it improves Parkinson's scores. Again, open label, it will need to be tested in much greater um, detail um, and hope um, people do bigger studies in the near future to see whether art therapy can actually benefit Parkinson's patients. Okay, and um, this next one is uh, called Kick Out Parkinson's Disease. It's yeah. uh, similar to the rock steady boxing, I assume. Yeah, um, there are some uh, key differences, but we can go over that. So uh, this uh, study, we'll round out here. This is the fifth one that um, is in this series uh, from the AN meeting. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of discuss this and we'll um, finish up this podcast with this discussion. And we'll come mm -hmm. back with a few remaining. But Kikout stands for karate. Karate, as you know, is a martial art that originated in uh, China and in, uh, in the neighboring countries, Korea and other uh, areas. Um, karate was um, made very famous in Hollywood by uh, Bruce Lee and his series of movies in the early um, 80s, 70s. There was a big craze of karate and Karate Kid was uh, well made famous. And we used to have karate studios all over the world um, after those movies came out and became a very popular way of doing martial arts. Anyway, this group of people uh, did a pilot study. They decided to do uh, Parkinson's disease-specific karate intervention. So they picked um, specific moves within karate, and um, they again used the principles of um, uh, cognitive-based uh, physical moves. So we've talked about this in the context of other exercise therapy. and. Uh, I'll bring this up again, that when you are doing certain forms of exercise which requires cognitive thinking, uh, a process by which you do motor learning, uh, as opposed to just simply doing random physical exercise, you learn a pattern and you learn that pattern consistently, then it seems to improve your uh, Parkinson's scores and Parkinson's 
um, disability is mitigated much better when you do it that way. So uh, what they did was they did um, 10 weeks, twice weekly class, um, and they each class had these very PD-specific movement strategies that had cognitive aspects to it. They had to actually learn the patterns. So they were moves that required um, clear coaching and coordination and repeatedly doing the same thing. Uh, and of course, they, in, as was in the case with other similar types of interventions, the more they did, the better they did. So in, in addition to the uh, two weekly classes, they were encouraged to do practice at home, these same exercises. So um, PD patients who joined the exercises and actually did them throughout the, every day, throughout the 10 weeks, in addition to going to the classes, had um, significant improvement in their um, Parkinson behavioral benefits. Um, again, it was a 10-week study. We don't know whether after they stopped it, they had sustained benefits that lasted beyond it. I remember going to the poster and asking them about it. They said, well, we're still looking into it. And uh, they were investigating whether they continued benefit um, after the cessation of the karate. One of the problems with these types of um, treatments is that some patients are so enthusiastic, they continue. Uh, even if you tell them not to do so, they will actually continue the exercises. So for us to really know whether the benefits um, are sustainable, we'll really need to ask them not to do it, but that's really not practical in some cases because these are um, exercises that people do on their own and they get really hooked on to doing karate they might keep doing it. So um, that's the uh, very interesting uh, sidebar to, to all this. Um, so uh, I think, um, do you have questions on this, Laura? Yeah, it seems like, I know with Alzheimer's, they did studies and people that do a lot of cognitive work every day on crossword puzzles and mm -hmm. Sudoku and in little, little mazes and things like that, they can't find that it actually does anything in the long run. It seems in the short run, people feel better, mm -hmm. which is still good, mm -hmm. but they don't, there's no real long-term effect. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that what you've, you've heard? Yeah, but this is a little different. This is, you're planning your movement. So you're actually doing cognitive planning. So the good example I can tell you is um, when you learn to drive uh, figure of eight, when you're doing driving lessons, you have to go through these cones. You have to drive your car through these cones. So you have to learn how to maneuver a car through the figure of eight. So this requires a cognitive uh, planning. You plan the driving through there. So these are the types of things that we make people do when they come for cognitive physical therapy. We put cones, barriers. So you have to actually learn to do them using that particular mechanism rather than, uh, than just just random boxing or random uh, some other. So for example, learning a sport, if you learn to play tennis, you have to follow certain rules. You have to hit the ball in a certain way. You have to plan the movement. So planning actually um, allows better cognitive rehab, both for just mind as well as for movement. So movement becomes better when you have cognitive elements added to the, to, to the exercise plan. So, a uh, short way of saying it is learning a sport is better than just doing random physical exercise. So it seems like you need to have a, a crossover study to really 
Yes. But that's hard to do with people if exactly. you stop doing it. Exactly. Exactly. Interesting. That would be nice to know whether it's, it works. Right. Yeah. Well, um, we covered uh, five of these um, big um, activities that came up at the meeting. Um, when we um, come back ne perhaps next week and do the remainder in, a, in the, another podcast, and I'm sure um, there will be some listeners who will be intrigued by these. Sure. And give us some feedback on them. Yeah, these are real good to talk about. Yep. All right. Well, thanks, Dr. Sue. You're welcome. Take care. Bye.